thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to Wellness Women Radio with women's health experts, Dr. Ashley Bond, the pregnancy and birthing guru, and the queen of hormone imbalances, the period whisperer herself, Dr. Andrea Huddleston. They're raising the bar for women's health by bringing you the most up-to-date health and wellness information to live your best life. Now, onto the show. This episode of Wellness Women Radio is very proudly brought to you by Dinner Twist. Dr. Ashley and I want to let you in on a little secret of how we maintain our healthy whole foods lifestyle with very little time. And one of those ways is actually with Dinner Twist. So they plan, they shop, they deliver everything to our door to take all of the guesswork out of having really healthy meals for dinner each night. Um, I love Dinner Twist because they are a locally family-owned business here in Perth in Western Australia, and all of their produce is locally sourced and seasonal. So they are really invested in all of their suppliers as well, which is absolutely amazing. Everything is so fresh. Uh, Ashley and I both get the Wholesome Box, which is naturally gluten and dairy-free as well, and is very consistent with a paleo-type lifestyle as well. Uh, so it's, you know, completely consistent with, you know, the way that we want to eat and want to feed our loved ones too. This is also how I trick Dean into thinking that I can actually cook. So seriously, if I can do it, everybody can trust me. And their recipes are so delicious. They also have other options apart from the wholesome box. So they have a family box for bigger size families an express box. If you're really short on time, uh, as well as a vegan box too. Now, we would love to give you the opportunity for you to actually try Dinner Twist and realize how healthy, how delicious and how fresh it is, but also how much easier this is going to make life as well. So we have a special promo code for you, and that is going to give you $35 off your first box. And that is WWR for Wellness Women Radio. Um, So we would love you to uh, try for yourself. Don't take my word for it, but let me know what you think. Without further ado, ladies, onto the show. Hey there, gorgeous listeners. Thanks for joining us today on Wellness Women Radio. I'm Ashley. And I'm Andrea. And don't forget to follow us on social media. So we are the Wellness Women official on Instagram, the Wellness Women on Facebook. I am DrAndrea.xo on Instagram and the Period Whisperer on Facebook. And you can find Ashley on Dr. Ashley Bond on everything. And hey, ladies, just a little um, shout out and reminder, please make sure that you um, rate and review the podcast um, because we know how much you love us because you tell us all the time, but we want to see it in our review used to. <laughs> um, ladies, welcome back to another episode of Wellness Women Radio. And this interview is going to be massive. I am so, so excited to welcome our guest today, who I think is just such a wealth of knowledge. I think we could talk to her for an entire week and not even scratch the surface. Um, and some of the things that we're going to dive into today are going to be so relevant for you know most of our listeners. So I'd love to welcome Dr. Rachel Reed to Wellness Moon Radio. She is a midwife, author, teacher, speaker, researcher, consultant. She's published a huge amount of papers in academic journals, and you may have even seen her recently featured in the documentary Birth Time. Rachel is an author of two best-selling books, Reclaiming um, Childbirth as a Rite of Passage and Why Induction Matters. She's also an award-winning um, blogger from Midwife Thinking Blog, and her incredible podcast, The Midwife's Cauldron, um, I think is a really amazing resource that we'd love you to check out as well. Um, her writing's been published widely in journals and magazines, and her public 
publications have been cited in midwifery textbooks and clinical guidelines as well. And not to mention that she is she has been a practicing midwife in the UK and Australia in all settings, including hospital, community-based group practices and independent home births as well. Um, so her PhD was also exploring midwifery practice during physiological birth. Holy moly, that is massive. Um, what an introduction. <laughs> that is like quite an impressive bio there. Um, so Dr. Rachel Reed, welcome to Wellness Room on the Radio. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. I feel tired now after listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, they were all your achievements. Like, gosh, that's amazing. Um, what to fit in uh, so far. And I know you're not done yet. <laughs> so welcome. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Maybe I am. <laughs> No, nah, I don't know. I think when you're on, on a kind of mission like you are, I don't know if that journey ever stops, does it? No, no, you're right. I try, I try and take a break every now and then, but yeah, you always end up back there, don't you? <laughs> and just on that, Rachel, how did this all begin for you to be a bit of a trailblazer in, in this world of childbirth? Oh, I don't think it was, it wasn't intentional. I just wanted to be a midwife. That's all I wanted to be. Um, when I set out to be a midwife, I never wanted to study again, had to study to be a midwife, had to do a degree, had to do a, it was a um, Bachelor of Midwifery Honours in order to be a midwife. But all I ever wanted to do was just practice midwifery. And then probably because, um, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this, I can be a little bit um, stubborn, I guess. And I like to know how things work. And I like to understand why things are happening and what and that was what headed me back into research was just basically as a midwife going what the heck why are we doing these things what's this all about why does the research say this but we're doing something completely the opposite to that it was just you know trying to understand it really sent me back back in <laughs> and when you started your blog what was your intention for your blog because i can imagine you, know, you start to spew out our mind onto uh you know the digital world what was what were you hoping you achieve with uh your blog when you first started out oh well this was kind of the olden days before there was like lots of kind yeah. of instagram and facebook and all that kind of thing and i was actually it was actually procrastination technique because i'm pretty um, i am awesome at procrastinating the best things <laughs> i've created have been when i'm trying to avoid doing something else <laughs> so i was doing my phd so i was gathering all of this research evidence to write a literature review and to kind of start my PhD off. At the same time, I was teaching at university, so I was teaching midwifery students, and I was had clients of my own as a private practice midwife um, and actually looking after women in the system as well. So I was having to share this information with women and with student midwives, and there I was gathering all of the evidence. And I just wanted to read, it was actually me also being a bit lazy. Instead of repeating the same thing over and over again, I thought, well, if I just put it in a space, okay, then I can say to the women, hey, look at this area and I'll talk to you about it next time I see you. Have a think about it. Think of some questions. Student midwives could go, well, look, there's what I've done with the research evidence. Read my blog post, but make sure you look at the actual research because my interpretation may not be your interpretation. Mm. So it was really just a place to send people so I didn't have to say the same thing over and over again. And then it just kind of took off. So... <laughs> And it's still there today. And what I use it as today, it's not its not really a blog in that I don't keep putting posts out, you know, about what's going, lots of little posts. There's really, if you go there, 
it's more like a website in that there'll be like a page on a subject and I just go in every now and then and update with the latest research so that I try and maintain them because they're now like 10 years old, some of the posts. So try and maintain the latest evidence and update them and change them accordingly. And I love the way you say you were working, you know, um, as a home birth midwife, but also working in the system. And I obviously, you know, feel having listened to your podcast multiple times that uh, that's an area where you realise that something needed to be different. You know, there was some changes that needed to happen that need to improve the sort of uh, outcomes for both mums and babies, um, not just in the birth space, but in preparation for that too. Um, Send us on the journey towards writing your incredible book, Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage. I just loved that title when I first read it. I was like, this is just so powerful because we forget the ritual involved in transitions in life. And um, you've really unpacked it in such a beautiful way. What was the journey that got you to go, you know, I have to write this book? Well, it it was basically based on my PhD. This book is like a culmination of all of my work, I guess. I kind of feel like if I never write another book, then that's okay because it's all in that book. (laughs) Wow. All of the research I've done, my kind of philosophy, my PhD, all of that. Why Induction Matters book was much more of a speaking to parents about, okay, this is induction, this is the evidence. What decisions do you want to make and how can you make those decisions and how can you, if you have an induction, you know, take some control and power in that for yourself but reclaiming childbirth which came after why induction matters was really i did initially say i'd never write a book when i finished my phd thesis and what had happened when i did my phd was i headed in looking at all of the research around what midwives do during birth and how women experience what midwives do during birth and i wanted to keep it focused on physiological birth because if a woman's got an epidural or she's being induced, then a midwife needs to do lots of things. That's like, you know, you do actually have to do things. But what I was interested in is what are we doing during physiological birth and is what we're doing helpful or not? Um, because we're taught to do lots of, it's very busy during, as particularly as the baby's emerging, you know, there's all these things that as a midwife I was taught you have to do, you know, tell women how to push, put your hand on the baby coming out to make sure, you know, she doesn't explode, all of these things that I was expected to do that the evidence didn't support. So that's where my PhD started. And of course, as PhDs do, particularly if they're qualitative, then they're really looking at like people's experiences. And so I interviewed midwives and women. And what I found by the end of that long process, number of years, I think it was six, was I couldn't really explain things in terms of, you know, oh, the research says this, but midwives are doing that and women experience it like this. And I ended up heading during the kind of trying to find a framework to explain what I've found. I ended up in rites of passage and ritual theory. So, you know, Robbie Davis Floyd and Sheila Kitzinger had previously gone there um, with childbirth. And I headed back into all of that kind of literature because what I had found fitted really well into that framework you know that here the women were going through rite of passage which was a transformation from you know um not a mother of this baby on the outside i guess because some women had already had babies but a rite of passage into the mother of this particular baby you know this is where they're what they're trans transforming into and during that transformation it's not just physical you know as we know it's emotional it's social it's cultural there's these massive shifts happening for a woman that biology and physiology is part of, but it's not the only bit of the picture. 
And how women come out the other end depends on how they are treated during that transformation, what messages they get from midwives and others um, and society as a whole. Those things inform the transformation and ultimately transform at the end how the woman steps into motherhood. You know, whether she steps into it empowered, confident, knowing that she is the expert or whether she steps into it feeling disempowered that she needs to reach outside for external expertise to know what her body's doing, what her baby needs. So it was really that's why I wrote this book was just looking at where where have we ended up because we've ended up with a maternity system that doesn't meet the needs of women. We have a third of women traumatized after childbirth. Um, most of that trauma is not a physical thing happening like a hemorrhage or a cesarean section. It's how the woman was spoken to and treated. So it's what we're doing to women that's causing the trauma primarily. So we've got women coming out broken. We've got midwives, particularly in the system, broken because they're burned out because they've got this philosophy around woman-centered evidence-based care and it's virtually impossible to enact that in their work. Um, and we've got you know all this research being done which is great fantastic but it's not implemented into practice because it doesn't fit what the institutions were set up to do so i really wanted to explore that in the book and, and explore it we're here this is why we're here because this is a question that was get but why but why is it not evidence-based well it was never set up to be evidence-based you know the system was set up to serve the purposes of the institutions and organisations, not the women birthing in those systems, not the midwives working in them, um, to really explore that and then really look at, okay, so that's what it is. How can we reclaim it? How can we reclaim childbirth for women and have evidence-based, woman-centred care that really augments her transformation into mother in a really positive way? And how can we do it today not going back to the dark ages and going well we all need to just be you know herbal it's all about herbs and midwives doing all of these kind of medieval techniques that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about bringing through what is what was helpful and positive from those eras but also embracing modern technology you know medicine we need medicine a lot some of the time you know it's really helpful medicine's fantastic at sorting out things like preeclampsia or you know real medical complications the problem is when it's applied blanket across every single physiological process it actually you know, counteracts it and we've even got the lancet you know medical journal saying we've got too many interventions that are causing harm now that we've we're actually the harm that's caused in childbirth to women is being caused by too many interventions in modern maternity settings so the book was really about that and and really reclaiming physiology, pulling it away from those ideas of the body as a machine and stages of labor and all that bullshit, and looking at it as a physiological journey that women go through alongside this emotional cultural journey. Incredible. And are you able to just sort of run through those physiological stages? Because I know that when I first read it, it was sort of terminology and language that I was unfamiliar with. And I thought, <laughs> wow, what a beautiful way of describing something. Because if you, you know, speak to most mothers, the only memories they have are how much, you know, how many centimetres dilated they were, you know, at what stage and when they failed. And their their only memory of their, their birth journey has been at what point someone told them that they were only three to four centimetres or they were stopped at six mm -hmm. centimetres or, you know, and that language is um, so different 
defining for so many women that when I read your your work, I was like, hmm, interesting. Imagine if we had a different take on this and we stopped talking centimetres and we started talking physiology. What a different picture women would have about their experience of birth, irrespective of how that birth comes about. And I think mm. I love that you also cover because not every woman can have, you know, a natural birth. There may be times where that's that's off the mm. table. So, um, you know, you can still support a woman's physiology through those processes to, you know, improve birth outcomes, um, improve breastfeeding outcomes, all these things, just by looking at it differently, which is, you know, how you've defined it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why the last chapter was on medical birth, because actually most women have a medical birth in our culture, whether that's by choice or whether that's because they needed to because of some medical complication, et cetera, um, or whether they were coerced into that. You know, that's the main thing. But a medical birth doesn't mean it's not a rite of passage. It's still a powerful rite of passage. Women can still be empowered during a medical birth, um, and they can be disempowered during a natural or physiological birth. So, yeah, it's really important to make that distinction that you don't have to have a physiological birth to have a childbirth rite of passage. You're having it anyway. Um, and I wanted to get away, though, from the state. And I didn't, I actually took stages of labour out of the curriculum when I was a midwifery lecturer because it's not helpful because mm-hmm. the stages of labour are based around what the cervix is doing. Mm. And we now know from lots of research that women's bodies don't work in the way that we're expecting them to according to graphs and charts of progress. Cervixes don't open that way. Um, it's all just so much more complex than that. We've got lots of research showing that, and yet we still use the partogram to measure labor progress, which was, you know, came out of the 1950s, and that's a whole other story. So we're still using these really old ways of assessing labor progress and talking about labor. That since then, there's been lots of research evidence showing it's rubbish, but we still keep doing it. So I thought, no, we're not going to do it anymore. So I pulled it out of the curriculum. And I just don't talk about stages because you don't actually need to. Stages is something that's based on an external assessment of what somebody's cervix is doing, which doesn't actually tell us where they are in labour. So instead, I actually used the framework of rites of passage, which initially had three. So from an anthropological perspective, which is where that rites of passage framework comes from, it's a way of looking at transformations of any kind, like, you know, transformation of maiden to woman, you know, menarche and menopause and all ca- and, and boy to man, all all kinds of rites of passage. And the framework is, involves three different phases. So that's what I actually had in my PhD. But since then, I've added in phases. I've taken the liberty of saying, well, for the childbirth rite of passage, I feel there are other distinct phases within those you know, three phases. So the first phase is preparation, because you know, humans, unlike other mammals, have, you know, large neocortex. We anticipate the fact we're going to give birth and we plan and prepare for that. So the preparation phase is the first phase. That's pregnancy, the end of pregnancy. And then we move into the separation phase. And the separation phase of labour is what would be called in the medical system as early labour or latent labour or, you know, basically time-wasting labour. It's often how it's framed. (laughs) But it's not, it's really important. Just like all other mammals, this is the phase in labor where you have the neocortex still functioning because you've got adrenaline and cortisol, but you're starting to have oxytocin creating contractions. And the reason that you've got this 
this balancing act between contractions and adrenaline, which knocks the contractions off, is the whole purpose of that phase is to find a safe place to birth. This is when a cat or a dog would go off to the garage and find make a nest to go somewhere safe. And women do the same thing. So this is early. The whole point of separation is to separate from your everyday life and to find somewhere secluded and safe to birth. So whether that's at home, or whether you're traveling to a birth center or a hospital, it's getting yourself there. That's what the whole point of that, that phase is, getting people around you who help you feel safe. And once you've done that kind of separation work and you feel safe, then the adrenaline goes down, the oxytocin kicks up, contractions increase, beta endorphins are flying around and you enter into that liminal phase. And the liminal phase is that real altered state of consciousness where the neocortex is shut down, limbic system is full on, you know, that's dominating. And that's safety. It's really important that that's happening because it's those instinctive, primitive kind of functioning of the brain that keeps women safe, that allows them to know how to move instinctively when they need help, if they need help. Most women don't. So that's kind of the liminal phase. And as the, the woman is progressing through the liminal phase, it reaches a peak. It kind of gets stronger and stronger. Sometimes there's a little bit of an ebb where she can have a sleep. Generally speaking, it kind of builds and builds and all those hormones are building and building and building. And then you kind of get to the peak where there's this transition and we're getting close to having the baby. And, you know, you don't want to be completely stoned, which is kind of how women often feel when they're under the influence of, high beta endorphins they even look like they're stones don't they they're kind of like out of it because they're journeying really deeply inside themselves connecting with their baby and body but to look after the baby when it's born you kind of can't be you know in that full-on altered state so you get a massive burst of adrenaline to clear and activate the neocortex and you'll see women that's the point at which they'll feel really overwhelmed some women will experience it as overwhelm or fear because it's adrenaline you know We've all experienced adrenaline bursts at some point. Um, other women don't, but you know that's the transition, is that kind of shift from that liminal phase, transition. Sometimes it will knock the contractions off so the woman gets a nice sleep because the, the oxytocin is knocked down with the adrenaline. Often not, though. And then she moves into what I call the emergence phase, and this is where the baby's going to emerge, so the baby's now moving down. It's a real shift in the kind of work that the uterus is doing um, it's pushing the baby out now so that not only is the baby emerging but this woman is emerging from that liminal state she's also emerging as a mother of this baby and because the neocortex is now activated this is women will often have much more clarity about what's happening and they might ask questions or they might get worried about progress and things because their brain's thinking um, and they're really working with this baby to move the baby through the pelvis. And then once the baby's born, um, they move into the integration phase. And that's like forever. You know, we, I'm still integrating my births. And, <laughs> and I'm sure lots of women are still, you know, this is an ongoing process. But that early integration, which is what I write about in my book, is that meeting the baby. I call it enchantment, falling in love with the baby, releasing all those hormones that birth the placenta. Um and that really, that early kind of mother-baby falling in love thing that happens in integration and the mother and baby integrate together and then they begin integration into the family and into the bigger society. So that's it in a nutshell. 
<laughs> it almost sounds like a Disney fairy tale because I'm sure a lot of our oh. listeners are thinking like, that'd be nice. That wasn't my experience and that wasn't my journey. And, you know, you mentioned a third of women are traumatized after their birth. So there's a substantial number of women in society walking around thinking you're talking a whole lot of bollocks because they have no idea, you know, that this is even possible or even remotely possible, um, you know, for women who've had you know, experiences in the past that they'd like to change, you know, in some way, do you have any sort of suggestions on how, let's just say, you know, a mother with a child already, because I know I've even got some very close people to me who won't have another child due to the trauma that they experienced that they couldn't possibly go there again. Um, you know, how do we help? How do we help? How do we change that story for women? That's really sad and that is, you know, a lot of women are stepping into motherhood, bringing that trauma with them. And I think, you know, in terms of a rite of passage, any rite of passage, it's a a time of learning about yourself, whether it's positive or negative. So any rite of passage allows us to think about who we are, what we need for future rites of passage, whether that's another baby, whether that's perimenopause whether that's whatever that is there's a learning opportunity there even with a traumatic birth and I would say you know go and get help with dealing with the trauma and that's you know that is something that that you need to get specialist help if it's really impacting on your life and do that there are a lot of now trauma-informed counsellors who can help you work through that trauma associated with childbirth but in terms of you know having a medicalized birth you didn't expect um, look back and think about what did I learn about myself so you know when you talk to women part of the um, integration process is that kind of looking at backwards and thinking about what lessons have come through for any woman and at six weeks you were supposed to do the kind of final midwifery check but it's really a time of saying what did you learn about yourself you know how could I have helped you better etc and it can be as simple as you know, what did you learn about yourself? Well, I learned that I find it impossible to, to stand in my own power when I'm in an environment where there are medical experts. Okay, so you've learned that about yourself. So bringing that forward, what could you do next time you're in that situation? What would you need to help you step into your power in those situations? Um, you know, it's and A lot of women will actually go through their first childhood rite of passage, have, you know, not sometimes traumatic, but not necessarily the experience that they set out to have. And it's going through that experience that allows them to then make the decisions that change the next experience. And without that, that first not good experience, they wouldn't then go on to have that positive experience. And if women are having no babies at all after this, because it's so traumatic, then what can you bring? Because you're going to have more rites of passage. You're going to have perimenopause. What are you going to need? What have you learned about yourself, about your needs for that? You know, what do you need when you're going through a big transformation? What do you need from others? How can you protect yourself? I love the way you've, um, you know, helped see the, the lessons in all of it because it can be so difficult to turn something around that isn't what you wanted, expected or needed at that point in time in your life. But, you know, like you said, this is an ongoing experience of, you know, a rite of passage and they will keep coming. So, you know, the beautiful thing that I took away from your book as well is um, that restoration of trust and 
that leaning in to to oneself again, you know, that idea of innate intelligence, innate wisdom, this idea that, you know, philosophically aligns beautifully with the chiropractic world, um, because obviously that's something we teach and preach. But on the, you know, more important side is you mentioned how often women are disempowered by experts. You know, we're disempowered by the authority figures around us because, oh, they must know better. They they do this all the time. They must know better than I do. Um, and I felt like your book was a way of reminding women that whilst you are an expert in your field, you're not the expert on them. And I thought that was just such a beautiful outcome to say, oh, okay, so she tells me all these things, but I, I'm still the expert. You know, it's just a, a, a powerful uh, takeaway, I think, from anyone who reads a book. Hmm. And I think that I think that's really important for midwives or care providers to consider, and that's what I kind of get us get care providers to reflect on in workshops and on my online courses. What message do you want to transmit to women? By and large, in fact, everybody who comes to my workshops or does my online courses will say, "I want to trans, you know, I want women to know that they're powerful, that they should have the confidence to look after their baby, that they are the expert in their body and their baby." Okay, so then what are we doing? in order to transmit that to the woman. So if that's what you're saying, then saying to her, you know, I think you should do this because, you know, that's what I prefer, or all of my women do this thing, so this is the thing. Then you're actually doing the opposite to what you're saying, because what you're saying is she's the expert. So so it's not your job to be telling anybody, (laughs) any woman what to do, and then say, well, she should be the one who's the expert. It's your job to share information, support her decisions, and release any attachment to her decisions. She's not you. You know, an electrocesarian section might be the right option for her. That's her decision. But also with decisions comes responsibility. And we want women to take responsibility for their health, for their babies, for their lives. So we need to, you know, we need to mirror that and, and transmit messages that reinforce her responsibility and power in mothering. And it's hard because, you know, we're experts in general you know you have expertise in your profession I have expertise in my profession but I don't have expertise in an individual woman her body and her baby she has lived in her body all her life she's carried the baby all of the baby's life she is the expert in what she needs and what her body needs not me Andrea did you want to jump in That is so, so different to everything that we've been taught. And I love this idea that then women are not these passive caregivers and we want to help to almost for them to birth that version of themselves where they are, um, you know, the authority on their body, their authority on their health and the authority on their baby as well and to trust their intuition with that. Um, Rachel, can I ask uh, every single day in practice, I have a pregnant woman coming in, either being told that the baby's too big or too small. And it just, you know, obviously um, I've got opinions on that, but I want to hear it from the, <laughs> from the expert. Why is this happening? And, um, you know, what, what sort of advice do you give to women when they're told that their baby is too big or too small, which is encouraging a certain amount of intervention which may not be warranted, which is going to completely change their birth experience? Well, first of all, you can't tell how big a baby is until the baby's born. So (laughs) the ways of estimating size are not effective. They're Mm -hmm. very inaccurate. And that's the the research tells us that. So you can't estimate the size of a baby. So what's happening, I mean, there's there's a difference because there's the too small, which 
and I write about all of these in my book around induction because these are often reasons for induction, aren't they? So you've got the too small baby. One, you can't tell the baby's too small. Two, it doesn't actually, the size of the baby's not the important thing. What's important is, is the placenta working efficiently and effectively. Like, is the placenta healthy? Which is not about the size of the baby. That's one, one symptom. But if there's any concerns about the size of the baby, then we're looking at growth restriction. Then somebody needs to look at the actual placenta and the flow, blood flow through the placenta. So I would be asking the woman, has somebody you know, done a biophysical profile? Have they assessed the placenta? Not the ba- not the size of the baby. You don't know the size of the baby. Um, so, you know, that's what small babies might be genetically small. It might be just, you know, I used to have to look at, I used to look after lots of women from um, Bangladesh when I was in the UK. And they all had small babies. That was like normal. It was like 2.5 kilos was a decent sized baby for these women. It was like just normal. So small babies, not a problem. Growth restricted babies, yes, a problem, but you can't tell that from just estimating size of the baby. Um, now, big baby, again, you can't tell whether the baby's big. Just a big baby in general um, is not a problem. Um, women can birth big babies and often do birth big babies. Um, most of the babies I cared for, so it's interesting in the different populations. So in the UK, the babies, a lot of women had very small babies because I worked with the demographic of women who were socially disadvantaged, lots of smoking. So these babies were small and, and the Bangladesh community, their babies were small. In Australia, looking after women in private practice, doing home birth. Now, in Australia, women who have the resources to pay for a private midwife to have home birth are well-resourced women. They're generally healthy women who eat well. All the, pretty much all the babies were four kilos over. You know, it was a bit of a surprise for a baby to come out that was like, you know, three point something kilos. So they were just growing healthy big babies. Um, that, I don't know why we're, the, the guidelines even say, do not induce a baby based on, you know, an assessment of size. Those are international guidelines, Australian guidelines. Because you can't estimate the size and inducing the baby increases risks for that baby well, over and above the risk of just being a big baby, you know, it's actually the the perception of the baby's size has a greater impact on the outcome than the baby's size. So when you've done research looking at groups of women who had unexpectedly had a big baby versus women who were diagnosed with a big baby, but their baby wasn't actually that big. It was those women with the not very big baby who thought they were having one, whose care providers thought they were having one that had the outcomes associated with big babies not the group of women who seeked out a big baby with nobody guessing exactly and in my experience as well these women who have been told that they're having these ginormous babies normally just have you know regular size babies (laughs) yeah because it's not accurate and my concern is if they're having um, these babies earlier, so they're they're induced um, and the babies are coming earlier because of that. That and this is just my understanding of it, which is you know nowhere near the extent of what um, you know Rachel, you and Ashley have. Uh, but those last few weeks of that um, you know bub developing is critical for it regulating its own body temperature, its own blood glucose levels, and all of those sorts of things. So. Could birthing a baby that is, quote unquote, too big with the intervention that would be required to have that happen, what sort of detrimental effects could that have on both mum and bub? Well, if we're inducing a baby, 
um, before the baby has, because it's the baby who signals that they're mature and ready for birth. And they send out the signal to, to the mother's body to go, okay, get ready, go, um, I'm ready now. If the baby hasn't done that, then you're risking the chance that the baby hasn't made those maturation changes that for the transition to breathing. They haven't laid down the brown fat that they need for that transition, their temperature regulation, all of that stuff. They also make changes in their brain um, just before birth that help to protect the brain from those um, interruptions of oxygen that happen during contractions that are healthy and normal to create wow. that you know, healthy stress for the baby. Um, they may be not, not uh, they may be what um, Katie calls in the midwife's cauldron now, she calls them not pre-term, no, not pre-term, late, late pre-term. So, you know, they're, according to dates, they're, you know, full gestation, as in their past 37 weeks. But actually, they then they haven't made those changes. So they're not ready for breastfeeding. They haven't, they're not ready to do the things that they need to do when they're born. So you've got more issues with the breastfeeding, etc. That's even outside of the risks of the induction process for the baby. And, you know, interestingly, induction increases the chance of shoulder dystocia which is one of the things that they're telling women to get induced for because big babies are going to get stuck. Well, a big baby or any baby is more likely to get stuck with an induction because the contractions are at a different pattern and pace that don't give the baby space to rotate and turn to come through the pelvis. So you're actually increasing the risk of tearing. A woman's more likely to have a perineal tear if she's induced, never mind the size of the baby. So inducing her... For a big baby because we're scared of perineal tears or shoulder dystocias but the induction itself is going to increase those risks so kind of doesn't really make a lot of sense which is why the guidelines say don't offer an induction for an estimated size of a baby oh i love that that's just like a really great mic drop right there rachel that's amazing thank you um i can't wait to have these conversations with these mothers as well um or these pregnant women who are just being told that they're having big babies and being like just referring them to this part of the podcast because i know that they'll love that and they'll go back in armed with you know such great information around that and it will help them to make different decisions too um rachel i feel like we could chat to you all day long about these things and i think that we need to organize a part two for this so that we can dive <laughs> into this at such a deeper level as well. Um, Rachel, where can our um, listeners find out more about you? Where should they go? Oh, okay. So um, you can, if you go to www.rachelreed.website, then that's kind of a hub where you can then find me everywhere else. Or Midwife Thinking on social media, so Instagram and Facebook. And the blogs, midwifethinking.com. Um yeah, I think that's where you can find me. And the podcast is The Midwife's <laughs> oh, yeah. Cauldron, which I think is just the best name for a podcast. I love that. <laughs> yes, that podcast, that's Katie's baby because I'm I'm not a podcast person. I'm not very good at the, the interviewing and the, all that stuff. So Katie um, trained with me. She's a lactation consultant and I'm not, a, you know, that's not my area of breastfeeding and lactation. So so she brings all of her expertise and we literally just mix it up in the cauldron and have a chat. <laughs> 
Oh, I love that. With, with your forces combined, you know, you cover all the spectrum of uh, the maternal experience. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I feel like we've only just touched the surface of um, what your book has to offer as well. So, ladies, if you're interested in transforming or changing the way birth is viewed, not just for yourself, but for people you care and love about, um, care about and love, I'm a bit of a spinner and Make sure you go and find Dr. Rachel's book, Reclaiming Childbirth as a rite of passage. If I had my mission, I think it would be to put this book into every woman's hands. But, uh, you know, that's a bit of bias there because I just think it's (laughs) phenomenal. Um, So thank you. It's been such a pleasure and privilege to speak to you today, Rachel. Oh, thank you. So, ladies, you've been listening to Wellness Women Radio. We are the Wellness Women, Dr. Ashley Bond and Dr. Andrea Huddleston. We are raising the bar for women's health. And until next week, be well. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.